Um, you know, I had a job at the time I was working. I started to get some funding, but I was on the lower tiers because I was a brand new athlete. So I was trying to work a full time job and compete and, and kind of build up to the game. So, yeah, I mean, there was times when I thought I've bitten off more than I can chew here. I mean, we had a very young family as well. And I remember laying on the gym floor and crying at times because I was so incredibly broken. Hello, and welcome to the Helping Organisations Thrive podcast. This is your host, Julian Roberts. This podcast is to provide leaders with insights, discussions, and robust strategies to help their companies thrive. We'll be interviewing business leaders, owners, experts, and thought leaders in the field of business resilience. Do enjoy the episode. Welcome to Helping Organisations Thrive. Uh, today, I have the great pleasure of Aaron Phipps on the show. Uh, good morning to you, Aaron. Hey, Julian. How are you doing? Good to see you. Uh, and I'm just going to tell the audience a little bit about you. Uh, you are a gold medal winning Paralympic champion from uh, Tokyo 2020 Games. Um, you've uh, you scaled Kilimanjaro on your hands and knees. And that will come a bit more clearer later on. We start talking about you for charity. And you've been voted in the top 100 most influential people in the UK with a disability. And we're going to be exploring a little bit of how you've overcome adversity and what we can learn from that and the mindset that's created uh, in, in your own sense. So I want to take us back to when you were 15. This is when it all sort of happens. Um, uh, from, from what I've read in your story, you were probably, I would say, a healthy 15-year-old doing what 15-year-olds do. So what happened at 15, uh, Aaron? Yeah, absolutely. It was the first day back to school after the Christmas holidays in 1999. Um, I was in year 11 at school, so all those years of school, and I missed the most important bit on the run-up to my exams. But I got home and I told my mum that I didn't feel very well. It was January, loads of flu around, didn't think anything of it. I uh, went up and got into bed, had a fever, but again, didn't think anything of it, thought of it. Finally got to sleep, woke up, vomited twice in the night, cleaned my teeth, back to bed as you do when you're poorly. My dad woke me up in the morning to see how I was, and I said I felt like rubbish. I got up to go to the toilet and I collapsed on the landing. Dad heard me fall down, so he thought it was something more serious, ran up, scooped me up, put me in my parents' bed, and my mum saw a rash appearing on my chest. And she vaguely knew the symptoms of meningitis, so she kept asking my little sister to bring a glass. She didn't understand, so she kept bringing a glass of water. Mum would say, no, just a glass pressed the glass down on the rash, it didn't disappear. So they called out a doctor who called out an ambulance. So my very first symptoms to life support machine was 12 hours and from the rash appearing was just one hour. And on paper, I had acute respiratory and renal failure from meningococcal septicemia. So I had meningitis type C. So I became very poorly very quickly. And what was the result of that? I mean, that, that sounds terrible. And obviously every parent's um, nightmare in terms of what's happening to your, your your son or your daughter. So what was the result of that? Because obviously they obviously tried to combat that with obviously I guess, antibiotics and things like that. Yeah, indeed. So I, I'll be honest with you, Julian. I don't think I ever appreciated what my parents went through until I had my own children. You're talking about it being a parent's worst nightmare. I mean, you, you look at it from their perspective, as you mentioned, healthy 15 year old next thing you know i'm flat on my back in intensive care and they're saying to my parents you know you need to invite your family in to say goodbye if they want to they gave me a 20 percent chance of survival which i think was just being nice to give them some hope um but yeah i was completely on life support the only thing that didn't shut down was my heart if my heart stopped that would have been the end but 
yeah, they, they combat it through antibiotics. It's, meningitis is weird because you catch it, they pump you full of antibiotics and it's gone, but then it's the aftermath that you're left with. Mm. So it's a bit more complicated than this, but your body's very clever at keeping you alive. So mine went into shutdown mode. It sent my blood to my vital organs. I didn't get enough blood to the ends of my legs and the tips of my fingers. So they woke me up in intensive care and broke the news to me at first that I might have to have very tips, my fingers amputated on my toes. And then um, not long after that, they broke the news to me that it was going to have to my feet as well. So that was really difficult because, I, you know, I was down to about six and a half, seven stone. You know, I was pretty much on death's door and then finding out that I'm going to have to become an amputee as well. So that rehabilitation process was massive. It took ages. Um, I was I was an absolute mess. <laughs> And I mean, I mean, I, I was at uh, 16 years old. I was in hospital. I broke. I had a motorbike accident, so not quite the extent. But I was in hospital for three months, bedridden. Uh, it's the worst nightmare for somebody at 16, 15 years old to be bedridden and pinned down. And you know, and I, I had to re rehabilitate. Obviously, I didn't lose my, my legs, but I certainly had a lot of injuries. Um, how did you deal with that? I mean, it's quite, whatever age you have that sort of having losing your legs from the knee down. That's some some something to try and deal with in your head. I mean, I don't know. How, how did you go with that? I think this will be something that will come out more in discussion as we work our way through this. But it was it was strange because it was arguably the worst and best thing that ever happened to me in one foul swoop. Worst for obvious reasons, but best because I'm, I wasn't making really bad choices as a teenager. I wasn't particularly working hard in school. I wasn't. I don't know what route my life would have gone down. And this gave me kind of a focus and a drive. I mean, if you want to kick up the bum, nearly dying will do that for you. <laughs> and it made me very determined to get better as quick as I could. So the physios would come in and do exercises with me. I demanded double physio sessions. And yes, it was uncomfortable, but I couldn't understand other people that moan about having to go and see the physio. I'm like, these people are trying to help us. Come on, let's get more of this. But what, what, made, what made you want double? I mean, that, that's that's unusual because I, I remember my physio. It was the nightmare. Physios are quite hard and tough and they hurt yeah, yeah. as well. But what that's made what you think, I, I want double? What was the drive in that? I wanted to get better. I wanted to do something more. I just, more I just wanted it. to get better as quick as I could. There was no way that this was going to define me or beat me. I remember there was another girl in hospital and um, she was very poorly as well. But she kept shouting out things like, let me die and things. I remember just thinking, why would anyone want to die? Come on. Let's get on with this. And I don't know what it was. It sparked something in my head. But to be honest with you, I thought I was dealing with it okay. But looking back, I probably wasn't. I mean, it, it took me years and years to get my head around what had happened from the trauma sense and becoming an amputee. But I guess that's how I focused and thought I was okay with it by digging deep and deciding to get better as quick as I can. And just taking, you know, the opportunities and the resources around you to do that. Hmm. Because often people, when they go through such difficulty, they can either either become what we say post-traumatic growth, where they get transformational and they see meaning in it and they do something with it, like you have yourself, or or it flips the other way, where they become almost post-traumatic stress disorder, where it almost defines them more in a negative sense. Um, what do you think it was in you that sort of made you flip, and, and what was your journey from that point that got you to where you are today? to be more more transformational for you that's that's a massive question do you know what i being honest i don't know um it, it, it just flipped something in my head it, i just i just wasn't going to let it define me and i just decided that i was going to beat it as quick as i could um it, it just it almost sparked a light bulb above my head and made me go right i'm going to beat this you know it wasn't 
it wasn't a conscious thing. I thought, you know, I'm going to sink or swim. I just, it just happened. And it kind of happened quite organically as well. I don't like saying that word, but it just did. And I decided that that is what I was going to do with it. And you know what, if I could box that and sell it, then, you know, that'd be great. And I can't, and that's what I talk to people. I try and use my stories to, to try and help them. But, um, I just had more to give, you know, I was, I was 15 and this, this wasn't going to be the end. I, I never finished school. All my friends um, were preparing to their GCSEs. You know, I was relearning how to walk, how to hold a knife and fork or to do all that kind of stuff. Um, I made it to my prom. So uh, I was about six and a half, seven stone. And I was bandaged from the ends of my legs all the way to the end of my stumps um, in this kind of massive NHS wheelchair. And people would say, Aaron, you look amazing. I didn't look amazing. I did not look amazing <laughs> at all. But I made it to my prom. But I don't know. It just It just gave me a perspective going back to the thing of, you know, I had a few shaky moments in hospital. One time I nearly bled out and I'm not going to go into details. Um, <laughs> people eating their breakfast are not going to want to hear this, but you know, I, I nearly died a couple of times in ICU. And if you want that real perspective, when you're laid there thinking, okay, this is it, it's happening. Mm. And then you get another opportunity. You're going to take that opportunity. Mm. So you, you obviously got this drive. You, you obviously want to take this opportunity. And I know you went on to do things like 10 Ks or wheelchair sort of for charity and races you, you started to just seem to do something with it I mean did that just sort of the opportunity just start to appear and challenges and you thought actually I'm gonna do something with this I'm gonna make raise some money and get fit and start that what, what, what was it behind that right the good answer would be yes I always had this goal and this clear focus but if I'm being brutally honest it all happened by chance um I wanted to I went back into uh job roles I was working in kind of admin jobs because of my disability you know I probably would have been more suited at kind of um a hands-on role but I just couldn't do that so I went into admin roles and I wanted to raise some money for the meningitis research foundation that had helped me out when I'd been poorly mm. and I said that to my friend Nick at work and he said you shut the 10k race and I went oh yeah, okay and this seems to be a theme of what's happened is I just agree to things I probably shouldn't agree to. And it's led on to other, other opportunities, but that's yeah, literally how it started because I wanted to raise some money for charity. I did a 10 K race in an everyday wheelchair, um, started at the front of this race, got overtaken by everybody and came at the back, but loved it. I got a secondhand racing wheelchair and I did the London marathon twice. Again, someone said you should enter the London marathon and I went, all right, not realizing how far 26 miles actually is. And I, and I did that twice. And the second time I did it, I did it quite fast in one hour, 59 minutes. And that's how it all started with the wheelchair rugby. I met a couple of guys who played wheelchair rugby and that's how I ended up in the Paralympics. Now, you say it, it was all by chance and it just happened. And, and I appreciate that. And, and, and it's quite nicely flippantly to say that. But there was something in you that was probably driving you or directing you or allowing you to see those opportunities, wasn't it, do you think? Yeah, I think you're probably right. I'm probably being a bit flippant. I mean, the truth is I just kind of agree to things and I did fall into them, but I think there was probably something at the back of my mind saying, hey, you've got more here. Let's just, I think it was going back to being poorly, just trying to take every opportunity and then seeing where those opportunities led, I guess. Mm. And this is one of my messages when I work with people now. I'm like, you know, put yourself out your comfort zone, try something new. Don't sit in your comfortable little bubble, you know, sign up and do something because that's when life gets interesting, isn't it? No, it does. And, and, and putting yourself in outside your comfort zone, it takes a bit of courage, doesn't it? Because you're not entirely sure what the outcome is going to be. You know, you chuck yourself into a 10K race. And sometimes, perhaps at the time, a little bit of naivety can really help sometimes where you go, oh, I can do that. Let's give it a go. Um, but you were obviously seeking some sense of 
opportunities and i think it's sometimes setting our mindset a little bit of let's look for the you know the good rather than looking for the bad or or looking at what we could have done actually you know, what can i do it's, it's just little reframes isn't it? our mindset that helps i guess foster and enhance those opportunities that you you grab hold of I think so. And I think it's not overthinking things as well. I think mm. we have a tendency to go, oh, that's a really good opportunity. And then, you know, imposter syndrome kicks in and a million reasons why you shouldn't do it happens. Mm. So just just do something absolutely bonkers. I think my story is a good example of how things can go wrong very quickly for no particular reason. And one day, you know, when we're we're old and grey and, um, you know, we're, we're thinking and contemplating life and what we've done, you know, you're not probably going to remember the money you earned. You're going to remember the opportunities you did. You're going to remember the time that you went and did a charity challenge or, you know, you put yourself out of mm. your comfort zone. So this would be my message to people. Just don't overthink it. Just sign up and do something. I'm a bit horrible at times. If I'm speaking and someone says, oh, I really, really like to do this, you know, I'll pull £10 out of my wallet and sponsor them because as soon as you got sponsored, you can't pull out something. So that's a really <laughs> good way. If you want to do something and you want to twist your arm, tell someone you're going to do something and get sponsored because as soon as you do that, you can't back out. <laughs> I'll be setting up a GoFundMe page for you. You know, if you said you wanted to do something, I'm like, no. yeah, let's make this happen right now. Don't know. Do not pass go. Do not collect two hundred pound. Let's let's just crack on with it. Why not? So you must have had times where you you've put yourself out there and you've just gone for it. And I great that. Don't overthink things. Just just do it. And things have gone wrong and things have been difficult. And so, how have you dealt with that? Because it's all very well getting out of our comfort zone, and it is uncomfortable. But don't, things always don't happen to be the sort of great outcomes. Sometimes things don't happen, do they? Or they fail or whatever you want to call it. Um, how have you dealt with those situations? We've got an example of that in, in your lead up to getting into sort of the wheelchair rugby. Well, we're, we're talking about resilience now, aren't we? So we, we, for me, resilience is a muscle that you flex. Um, it's something you can work when you go to the gym. You can go and make your arms stronger. You can make your resilience stronger because when things go wrong, that's when you learn coping strategies to be resilient. And that's different for every person. And that'll be different for every single scenario as well. I think it's specific to the area you're working in. So you've got lots of resilience now about running a podcast and, you know, delivering these live sessions online. I've never done that before. I haven't got any resilience around that, but that's because you put yourself out there to do something. Um, so I'm going off on a tangent here. So let me think of an example. Um, yeah, so I've got the opportunity to try. And the next games was going to be London 2012. And I was given this opportunity. They said, you know, if you work your backside off, there's a chance you could get selected. But, um, you know, I had a job at the time I was working. I started to get some funding, but I was on the lower tiers because I was a brand new athlete. So I was trying to work a full time job and compete. And, and kind of build up to the game. So, yeah, I mean, there was times and I thought I've bitten off more than I can chew here. I mean, we had a very young family as well. And I remember laying on the gym floor and crying at times because I was so incredibly broken. But, you know, would I change it? No, we went to London and we came fifth, which as an elite athlete, you don't want to come fifth. That's awful. You want to get a gold medal or you want to come eighth. Fifth is fourth and fifth is bloody terrible, to be honest. But, but you know, that probably led on to... You know, that's when I learned real strategies around being an athlete, how I manage myself, how I look after myself, like the types of foods I should be eating. You know, putting yourself out of your comfort zone and trying things like this is when you learn to be resilient. And God, no, of course it's not going to go right all the time. But if you don't try, nothing's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And when you were said you were you were crying in, on, your, on the gym floor and stuff, how do you sort of pick yourself up? How do you sort of get out of that sort of, sort of hole of feeling sorry for yourself or 
things are difficult. So, I mean, it, it, and I appreciate you might be telling yourself like you're telling me now, just get on with it. But what, what, what no, did no, you do? No, 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 no. <laughs> at that point, at that point, you need a support team. So, okay. Yeah. So volunteer and sign up and do these, these crazy challenges, but then surround yourself with really good people who can help you when it goes wrong. Cause you can't be an expert on everything and you yeah. can't do everything on your own. So I have people at the unit. I train at Southampton, Sony University. You know, I have professors of sports science training me. I had nutritionists. I have my family, you know, people who, when it got very, very tough, were there for me and probably give me perspective as well, you know, because it is only just sport. Don't tell my governing body I've just said that. But, you know, the, the reality is, you know, your family and other things are more important. And sometimes you need that perspective too. So, yeah, the easiest way to answer that question, you know, when it gets real tough, is have a good support network around you. And, and obviously, you said 2012, you came fifth, which was the, you might as well be in 15th. It didn't really matter. I think fourth is the worst, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so as a team, I mean, obviously, this is then doing as a team because it's, it's like a different, you know, because obviously I, I work with teams as well in terms of resilience and it's very different than individual. So how do you, you know, think about okay we've got fifth what did you do post sort of 2012 as a team and how that got you to tokyo which then you ultimately got gold i mean that that's quite a, a shift isn't it i mean yeah. what, what yeah. were the so things I, you did as a as a team and individual okay so just for context i competed in 2012 i took a break because i couldn't keep doing it for a while and that was right for me so i didn't compete in rio and then i went back for the cycle um to to try and make it to tokyo so that's just for context but um, as a squad, you know, we had historically um, never medaled. We'd always come fourth and fifth in every major competition. We'd always done our best, but we just couldn't break into the medals. And there was just this, this kind of jump between Europe and then maybe us and then the rest of the world, like the, the top teams at the time, America, Canada, Australia, these teams that were still putting sort of like, you know, up to 10 points a game on us. So we had to do something. Um, as a squad... One of the big things we worked on, uh, our psychologist worked with us on this, was our identity. So we, you know, our sport's relatively new. It's only been around since the 70s. And as GB, we were, uh, you know, really only competing properly since kind of the 90s. So it's, in, in the grand scheme of things, it's quite new. So we needed to come up with an identity and a culture that we all bought into because we're a bit fragmented. And that was a process it went through under the tribe model. I, I'm sorry, I can't tell you all the details on this because I was kind of on the program rather than the person delivering the program. But um, our psych worked with us on this. So the research suggests that, you know, teams with a strong identity performed better than teams without a strong identity. You think it'd be in sport that you'd win and then that creates your identity, but that's not the case. And, you know, we we, we had words that we bought into and, and kind of um, phrases and values, like we were a relentless team. We had really good comms. We were trying to leave a legacy for people behind us. And we started to really buy into this. The one that sticks in my mind the most is that we um, had no zappers. So when you came into a training session, you could be feeling like absolute rubbish. But if someone said to you, how you doing? You go, yeah, I'm all right. Because it's nothing worse, is there? When you go into that high-performance environment and you go, how are you doing? They go, oh... Oh, something's happened. The car broke down, you know, tire blew up or something, you know, so we were always there to kind of big each other up. So every training session we did, you know, they just ramped up and got more and more and more and more intense. But something special happened in that team because on paper, you know, we, we were fifth in the world. We'd never won a medal. And in the middle of a global pandemic with no resources, we went and, and got the gold medal in Tokyo. So that was, um, 
that was fairy tale magic stuff. So tell me a bit more about how you create that identity. I guess you were talking about purpose and vision and the values as that as that team. What other things did you do to try and, I guess, daily or weekly, whenever you met, um, embed that sort of uh, culture and identity? Um, I guess we always um, had kind of the communication would be flowing all the time um, in lockdown uh, when, you know, we didn't have resources. We were constantly having meetings, looking at ways, constantly watching video analysis of other teams. Um, and it was just it just became natural that we had these WhatsApp group going, WhatsApp group games where we were always pushing for more. What could you be doing here? Could you just be on top of this player? What do you think on this? These dialogues that are happening and happening more and more and more. And it just kind of became part of our culture. Um, you know, some of my teammates were very isolated. They weren't able to leave their house in lockdown as well. So it was trying to stick with them as well. And we were having, I'm sure everyone had family quizzes. We had team quizzes and things as well. And it was, it was, it was so many little pieces of the jigsaw that slotted together. A little bit of luck mm. as well that meant we eventually got that medal in Tokyo. You talked before about, you know, people coming in feeling a bit blur. There was almost, it was none of that. It was almost, let's, let's go for it for high performance. How did you do when people genuinely were feeling? I'm not feeling it today. What what was the, you know, was it was it okay to say, Aaron, I'm not feeling great today? And, yeah, 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 yeah. We're not like. I mean, how, how did you sort of we get have a people where you can never do that? No, of course, of course, no. And and I think because obviously difference. sometimes high performance can create that mindset where actually I'm in a team, everybody's on it. Well, I think they're on it anyway. That's what they've told me. I can't show any sense of weakness or any sense of vulnerability here because we're all about high performance. Was that in play or I don't know? I understand no, 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 no. It's, it's, and I think when I'm talking about these things, I'm talking about, you know, more what I refer to as trivial things like your car broke down. It's not that trivial, is it? But you know what I mean? You know, like normal, you know, oh, I didn't get as much sleep as I'd like to last night versus there's a family emergency and you need to go mm. home. Kind of for us, family and things were always more important than anything else because someone mm. isn't happy. They can't perform anyway. So, yeah, if someone's injured with a broken arm, then that's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll let them off. But we're just talking about more, more kind of more day to day, perhaps mm. trivial things. You know, we might go off to a tournament and the food's out of our control and it isn't great. We're doing what we can and we take snacks with us. But I'm not going in and going, oh, this breakfast is rubbish, you know, versus... Jamie's got something happening at home and he needs to leave. That's that's very different. Mm. Yeah, no, excellent. That's good. And so, so obviously that resulted in you uh, obviously getting your gold. And is it the only gold as a team sport in Paralympics, isn't it? I think. Yeah, Paralympics GB, first team gold medal. So um, Fantastic. This is what I mean. I have to pinch myself still when we talk about it. To the years of heartache and thinking to yourself, you know, I might go through my entire career and this may never happen. And the people that most important to me when we've done it obviously the team but it was doing it for my family you know they follow you around the world and love you unconditionally and they say don't worry daddy you did your best when it doesn't go right but to do that for them and to see what happened afterwards um a bit jealous of the parties that happened to my house to be honest with you because obviously it was in the middle of covid <laughs> but um we we're videoing each other and yeah it was raucous here so yeah i was a little bit jealous of that as well but to do that for them was what made it really special Fantastic. I mean, that's a great achievement. I say well done to you and, and the team there. And we, we hope for more in in Paris 24. And so what what's in terms of, I'm going to talk about Mount Kilimanjaro in a moment, but so Paris is next year. And I guess you've got some way to go to get there, isn't it? It's not just a simple, you go um, automatically, do you? No, no, not at all. So we, we haven't qualified yet. We've got the European Championships 
the beginning of May. So that's the next big competition we're building up to. Uh, I'll give them a plug if that's okay. Actually, that's at the Principality Stadium in Cardiff. So if anyone wants to come and watch some high-level wheelchair rugby in the UK, then then check that out. Just Google wheelchair rugby um, 2023 European Championships. If you do come, you need to wear um, Phipps tops, headbands with number 13 on your back. That would be <laughs> ideal. Thank you. But uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's still going and it never stops really. Um, because I play for Great Britain, we and to get the, the high level of competition, we're always flying around the world and playing friendlies or in going off to tournaments, etc. I was I was mm. in Denmark last week, so we it never really stops. I think the public sometimes think you know we they, we all come out for the Paralympics and then disappear again for three years, but that, that's not the case. <laughs> no, it was all well, it was all the training, qualifying, and everything else going on, isn't it, constantly? So. Uh, well, let's hope you you do qualify. Uh, I'm, I'm feeling confident based on your previous performance. Although it's not all about our, your previous performance, it's about the now performance. Uh, but I'm sure you're you're doing okay, and we'll we'll qualify for next year, which will be fantastic. Um, so you went on in 2013. You did Mount Kilimanjaro, um, sort of thing that you know. If I had a, I was in a wheelchair, I would think I'm going to climb, you know, the highest mountain in Africa. Um, <laughs> I don't think I would think that, to be honest. Um, so <laughs> why, in the first place, uh, did you go for that, Aaron? Uh, yeah, again, it was it was all by chance. So um, as I, I don't think these are all by chance, some of oh, these no. things. <laughs> no, it's taking opportunities, isn't it? Which isn't yeah. chance, but these when these opportunities come up, grasping yeah. them and going for it. But it was it was to do with the work that I did with MRF, the Meningitis Research Foundation. Um, I've raised a quarter of a million pounds for them over the years. And when Mike from the charity turned up at my house and said, you know, we send lots of university students up Kilimanjaro, do you fancy it? I kind of said, well, yeah, okay. I mean, I had a bit of an idea about Kilimanjaro. I knew it was a mountain, but I didn't know much else. So I had to Google <laughs> it and, and look it up. So I've got prosthetic legs being an amputee. I'm a bilateral below the amputee, missing both my legs below the knee, but I've got bad scars from the sepsis. So I can walk, but I was never going to be able to walk up Kili. So the idea was I was going to have to do it in a wheelchair. We looked into it. Other people have been up Killy in a chair, but they've been carried to the top, at which point I went, now I'm not up for that. So the goal that we set, Julian, was to become the first person in the world to get to the top of Killy without any assistance. Props. So that's literally you pushing yourself in the sort of um, your wheelchair or adapted wheelchair, I presume. And then I guess at some point scrambling up at the, at the very top well uh, the information we were getting back was that it was going to be tough but it was going to be doable you know it's not the most technical mountain in the world it's uh 5896 meters tall but it's pretty much like a really steep long walk towards the end it's you know you don't have to climb up any ice faces like you would on some of the more technical mountains which is why lots of people do it for charity so looking at that and we had people sending drones up there, etc. There were these man-made paths, and it looked like it was going to be doable. So I got myself a specially adapted wheelchair called a mountain trike, which almost, if you imagine, you drive it like ski poles, and it's geared, and, and oh, you, yeah. you, wheel, you wheel your way up. Right, okay. And we got there, and we set off. We were going to try and do it in the wheelchair. That was the plan under my own steam. Day one was meant to take uh, between three and four hours. It didn't. It took six hours. Day two was meant to take between four and five hours. It didn't. It took 10 hours. The next day they said, you're moving too slowly. We're going to have to carry you. 
Um, what did and, you think then? Because that, that was all sort of blowing out the whole doing it on your own, wasn't it, I guess? Well, because this is live, um, I can't tell you what I actually said. But sure. for argument's sake, we will say that I said, thank you for your concern, but the only way you're going to carry me on this mountain is if I collapse and you need to take me back down again. <laughs> and, and it didn't really go like that. We had a full-blown argument on the side of a mountain because they were saying, we've got to carry you. And I was saying, no, you're not, not very politely. And we were literally shouting at each other. When you have these moments in life, don't you? When you know we're having a full-blown argument and nearly having a punch-up on the side of a mountain in Tanzania, it was it was daft. It it really was silly looking back at it. But I just wasn't going to get carried. That just wasn't in my vocabulary. There was no way I was just going to get carried up this mountain. So, so, what, so what? Just to stop there for me. What, what what is in your your psyche? You got you got something. You just somebody comes to you and says, "Come and climb Mount Kilimanjaro," and you just go, "Yes," you know, without probably any thought about it at all. But by the set, that's, that's how it appears. <laughs> and then you have this psyche of, you know, I'm not going to be carried. This what what is behind all that? Is there's something quite deep there, isn't it? In terms of how you sort of seem to get through all the challenges and all the things you've you've faced. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm saying it quite flippantly because I just I would just like more people out there to take more opportunities, you know, and then then worry about what you've agreed to after you've agreed to it. But yeah, obviously, it took lots of plan, lots of prep, and lots of hard work. Well, no, no, I, sp I suppose I'm I'm more thinking of your mindset of how you. I yeah. Mean, I yeah, yeah, yeah. I like your just do it because I think it's really good, and I, I think we should do a lot more of that and just think about the consequences later on. In a sense, yeah. But but but, but what's behind that? Well, how, how do you how do you get that mindset to think that way for you? I, I'm quite lucky that I think I'm just programmed like it. And when they said, we're going to have to carry you, where my mind went, if I'm being honest, is I just thought about all the people that I said that I was going to climb up this mountain. Pound for charity. You know, the fact that I'm the least disabled on my wheelchair rugby team in terms of classification, you know. And I just, I just thought there is no way that I can get carried up this mountain. And a bit at the back of my mind, I also knew was that if I did, I was never going to forgive myself. So there was this really lovely moment where we're on the side of the mountain, uh, me and Ian from the charity. And, you know, and bearing in mind, there's so much riding on this. You know, there's so much work has gone into this ascent. There's so much. Um, well, you know, it can't fail because it's going to look like a failure and we're going to lose all the PR from it as well. And, and, and that. And I'm saying to Ian, look, I, I can't get carried, mate. And he's going... I know, mate, and I'm crying and he's crying. I just, I've got to go till I drop. And he said, yeah, I know, I reckon you can do it. Let's do it. And when I think about, you know, how much pressure was on him as well, he could have pulled rank and said, no, I'm sorry, you've got to be carried. We've got to make this happen. You know, and it was those kind of moments. But I, I guess maybe I would have towards the end if it had all gone wrong. But I had with me a set of B&Q knee pads and uh, a roll of duct tape, technical mountaineering equipment, so I duct taped my knee pads to my legs. I refused any help from the guys and I just started crawling on my hands and knees. Crumbs. And how long was that crawl? Four days. So the first day was nine and a half kilometers up the mountain. And then it was um, three more days after that. So I crawled on my hands and knees for three more days to get to the summit. But here's the thing. Okay, so now we're jumping around a little bit here, but I didn't really realize what I'd done. It wasn't until I got home and people said to me, how did it go? And I'd say, well, yeah, they're going to carry me. So I crawled. And they'd say, what? What do you mean you crawled? And I said, well, they were going to carry me. And I crawled. How long did you crawl for? Four days. What? And that's when I had the penny dropping moment of what I'd actually achieved. But at the mm. time, it just didn't compute in my head. You're not carrying me. No way. 
I'm going to do I didn't, this. I didn't, I didn't realise it was so early on that they, they were deciding to carry you. I thought it was later on. I didn't realise you were three or four days crawling on your hands and, and your knees with uh, B&Q knee pads and um, <laughs> duct tape. So stupid when you look back, isn't it? It's daft. But this all goes back to this point of, of doing things and just saying yes is, you know, it's more fun, isn't it? <laughs> it is more fun. So when you were crawling, effectively, for those sounds like most of the the, the sort of actual journey itself the, the sort of climb was there any point in that where you think I, I can't continue to this i can't I, i'm struggling with this and how did what, what was going through your mind then so i think how do i overcome this how do i keep going yeah I, I, it kind of linked back to my paralympic training the good thing was i knew how far i'd push i could push myself having been in high performance gyms or laboratories with, you know, sports scientists who'd push, who'd push me to absolute failure before, you know, so I knew how much I had in the tank. This was different. So I was doing things, just silly things. I didn't want to eat. I felt so sick, but I was forcing food down. I was forcing myself to stay hydrated, etc., because I knew I was going to fail if I didn't. And psychologically, um, I didn't have any headphones, but I had uh, an iPod speaker that I'd borrowed off someone and I'd put it behind my head. And I played really down dance music into my ears to take my mind off the fact that actually, you know, my knee pads were full of blood falling to bits and I was in so much pain. And it's, I think when you hear other adventurers and people talking about this kind of thing, you can just break it down into stages. You say, okay, I'm going to get up this next path. Then you get there, you take a breath, then you go around the corner and you make it up the next path. That's the only way you can go through and, you know, mm. an enormous challenge like this. But it was, it was just sheer luck as well that, you know, my knee pads didn't completely fall to pieces. My skin just about held up, you know, the roll of duct tape just about lasted, et cetera, et cetera. So it's always a little bit of luck involved as well. And so how are you with, with failure then when things don't happen? <laughs> well, <laughs> don't really do failure. <laughs> you know. um, no, well, I think, uh, I think if you've given it your best go and something goes wrong, then that's the outcome, isn't it? But if you give it your best go and, you know, you succeed, then that's great. But just not trying is a travesty. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not very, I'm not very good at it, to be honest. I'm not very good at failing. And and it's interesting when you talk about, you know, you'd done training before and sort of almost knew your perhaps capacity, what was in the tank. This was something completely unknown to you, wasn't it? You didn't know what you had in the tank to get up there, whether you were going to get there or not, I guess. You know, I did eight months intensive training in a wheelchair. I went and found the biggest hill I could in the new forest place called Lintest and went up and down this hill. And then I well, that was a waste of time, wasn't it? Yeah, well, it's a stupid thing. It was. So I learned a lot about how I could push myself. But again, this goes back to resilience, you know, and it's all linked in together. So I now know that if I tried to go up a mountain again, you know, I'd have strategies for doing that. But if I got put into other difficult positions in life, then I'd know how far I could push myself. But that's because I've pushed myself in these positions to know you know, have these coping strategies in terms of resilience. Yeah. And as I was going to say, what did you learn from all that? Is it that whole sort of pushing your boundary, pushing the limits for yourself? And did you think you pushed yourself to the limits? I mean, I've done the London Marathon and that, I'm on record somewhere saying Kilimanjaro made looking the London, doing the London Marathon, like doing the washing up. You know, it was, that was, I went to some dark places and it was the, it was the time as well, because, you know, on, on the summit night, we set off at midnight and we didn't get to the summit until half past 10 in the morning. And I'm, you know, I was in, I was in absolute bits. It was just, the, it just went on and on and on and on. And it, it just felt relentless. So that was, that was the tough bit being in so much pain, et cetera. But 
then the pride and the elation when you get to the top, you know, daft things. My my girls had made me a poster that said, good luck, daddy. You know, sitting on top of that mountain and holding their poster. Mm. And, you know, doing that with my dad as well. My dad made it to the top, collapsed when he got there, nearly killed him. But he made it all the way. Yeah, this is funny. He said he couldn't stop because I was crawling. <laughs> so <laughs> he just plodded all the way. And then, um, and then yeah, collapsed when he got there. But, you know, things like that and stuff like that happens because you put yourself in these situations, isn't it? And you get the bit at the end where you get to go, bloody hell, I achieved that. I'm pleased. Yeah, and you did it. That was fantastic. And I guess... It obviously wasn't just you, you had a team around you. How did how did you manage those relationships, which obviously sounds to me quite um quite fraught at one time at one point. How did that sort of carry on and, and maintain and develop sort of the mountain? Yeah, well, so we had we were a quite small team. There was me, my dad, Holly the doctor, Ian from the charity, and we had a cameraman with us. And then we had the guides which help you and you know set up the tents, the, the Sherpas F they're phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And yeah, it did get fraught because I think they were worried about us not achieving it more than anything. And I think, I don't know if they thought it was bravado when I turned up and said, I'm going to do this myself. And they went, oh yeah, 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 no worries. When it gets tough, you'll get carried. So I think when it got tough and they said, we're going to carry you. And I said, no, I think they all went, oh, <laughs> this hasn't happened before. <laughs> so <laughs> it was, it was fraught, it was fraught, but uh, fraught, I can't speak today, but it's, it was, it was good. And I think they got it towards the end. I think. They they underestimated me. <laughs> yeah, they, they certainly did. <laughs> but they learned a few things there, didn't they? About people and themselves. <laughs> Crazy British bloke with no legs who crawls up a mountain. I think they thought it was better. Yes, exactly, exactly. And I guess just I just before we finish, really, in terms of people who might be facing a, a real tough moment in their life right now, whether something physical, or mental, or something in their business. What, what, what would be your sort of, I guess, one piece of advice that would perhaps help them, inspire them to sort of keep going or, or somehow navigate that that challenge? Okay, that, that's kind of massive. I, I don't know if I can do it with one bit of advice. Could I, I think I'll answer this like this. I wish I could go back now and speak to that 15-year-old who was going through all the pain. And I know I just said, oh, yeah, take opportunities. It's great. It wasn't, it, you know, times it was tough. And to be able to say, you know what, mate, it works out all right in the end. I think, you know, got a beautiful young family. I play international sport for the country. You know, I've done some amazing other challenges and I wouldn't change anything now, but when you're in the middle of that moment and it's scary, that that's really, really tough. So I guess what I'm saying is just try and keep hope that things will get better and some of that's in your control. And if it is, then work hard to make it better. Brilliant. I really appreciate that, Aaron. And uh, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for all your wonderful energies of um, overcoming certain crawling up the mountain of uh, Kilimanjaro, uh, winning gold at, at Tokyo uh, last year. Um, and so if people want to sort of connect with you and get in touch with you, what, what's the best way of doing that? Yeah, on most socials, it's just at Aaron Phipps, GBWR. I've got a website, AaronPhipps.com as well, if you'd like to hear me speak or the like. Um, so, yeah, just get hold of me, please. But more than anything, if anyone's available to come to the Euros in May, you know, come and support us, um, et cetera, et cetera. Cheers. Brilliant. I appreciate it. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. If you do like this episode, then please do rate, review, and share with your friends and colleagues. As a coaching practice, we coach high-performing leaders and teams with extreme ambitions. We'll help you to go beyond what you believe is possible. 
If this sounds like you, then let's have a conversation with me. Contact me at julianrobertsconsulting.com. <laughs>